You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. It's great to be here with you all as, as usual on a Sunday morning to be able to gather with brothers and sisters committed together to living this life that God has called us to. I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to open, turn with me uh, to the book of Philippians. As we've been working our way through the book of Philippians as a church, we found ourselves now at the end of chapter 3. So we'll be wrapping up uh, chapter 3 this morning and preparing to be able to go into chapter 4 in in the weeks to come. Uh, It'll be the summer before we're done. There'll be a little break in there and other things too, so we can drag out Philippians a little longer. I've, I know I've been talking with uh, some of you, and, and it has just been an encouragement to think together about this happiness, this joy that we're thinking about together. Um, it's such a crucial part of the Christian life, and it's something that is so easy for us to forget and for us to miss. And so I'd like for us to read together these verses that we'll be looking at this morning that we find in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. We read this, brothers and sisters, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even as I weep that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. As we consider these verses together this morning, this is one of these passages, these verses in Philippians are just so rich. There's so many things that we could say. There's so much for us to take away from this. I know right off the bat, I was struck just in spending time in these verses at at Paul's, Paul's audacity to start this the way that he does, where he says, join in following my example. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you can tell other people around you, hey, do what I'm doing? I know I have a lot of hesitation in that sometimes. I'd rather say, don't look at me, look at Jesus. And, and there's a sense, of course, in which that's true, right? None of us is going to get it perfectly. Paul didn't get it perfect. But Paul is able to say that he is following Christ in such a way that he can tell other people, you want to see what this looks like in real life? Look at me. This is what it looks like. This is what it should be. And so what we find here is Paul calling these Philippian believers, and by extension, you and I as well, to follow his example. We're looking at a pattern of life, Paul's pattern. This is what he wants us to see. This is how he wants us to live. And it has all of the elements of the things that that we've been talking about as we've considered things together Another thing that stood out to me as I was, as I was looking at these verses is, is the, the passion of the Apostle Paul. Do you hear what he says there in verse 18? Many walk, I told you about these other people, I told you many times, I've often told you, he says, and now tell you, even as I weep. Do you hear the passion that Paul has here? This isn't just something that he's, he's just writing for the fun of it. This is a life or death thing. 
This is what matters above everything else. And you and I, we need to hear it that way this morning. That this is something that matters. This is something significant. That really what we have here before us is two conflicting patterns. Two different ways to approach life. And as I've thought about this, it wasn't lost on me that this is so similar to what we've started to talk about in ABF. Where there are two trees in the same environment, responding differently. One with a heart that's turned toward God, giving fruit that gives glory to God. And the other with a heart turned away from God that results in in thorns and those things. We're going to use that language this morning, but, but you can have that mind. You can picture that as we go along through here. Really what all of this comes down to is something that you and I deal with every day. We all have plans. We have patterns. We have plans. We have, this is how I want life to work out. One of the plans that I, that I read a little bit about this week was a plan that uh, Australians in Queensland in 1935 had. You see, they were having this problem with their, their sugar crops where these beetles kept eating all the crops and there was this invasive bug and they kept getting in and they were destroying all the crops. And they looked around like, what are these other places doing to be able to stop these, these beetles? And what they found was there's this toad from South America, South and Central America. And if you take these cane toads and you move them into Australia, they thought, well, they'll eat all the beetles that are destroying the crop. And this seemed like a fantastic idea to them. But you can probably tell what would happen in that kind of environment if you don't consider all of the different factors of what could happen. When they moved the toads there, they couldn't really reach the beetles, but they ate all the other things that all of the other similar kinds of animals were supposed to be eating. And the toads were poisonous. So if something tried to eat them, those animals were not prepared and they would die. Dogs and and other uh, things would, would die from trying to eat the toads. And so it it became this invasive species where there are millions of them still in Australia spreading across the country, and they they can't stop them. They're not sure exactly what to do about them. I would like for you and I each to consider what are our toads this morning? What are the toads that you have in your life? What do I mean? What I mean is, what plans do you have about here's how I'm going to make my life work out? Here's how everything is going to be happy and flourishing and successful in my life. And here are exactly the thing that I'm going to do. And I'm certain that my plan is going to fix everything. We all have them. And I want to encourage us to think think this morning about what are the things that we want to see happen in our lives. And what what are the toads? What are our plans that we've tried to put in play? And Paul here is going to help us as we consider these things. What we have here in this passage, I think, and it's a, it's a way that is helpful for us to think about, is we have four words, four parts of the passage, and we can see these as a comparison. Look with me together at, at verse um, 19. Look at what he says about these many. Many walk. I told you often about them. He says this about them. There's four things. He says their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame, and they have their minds set on earthly things. So those are the four things that I want us to see this morning. I want us to think together and consider together the goal, the end. Where are the plans headed? What is the goal? The gods, 
What are the gods that guide and lead the plans? The glory. What is the vision of glory that compels you and compels them, compels us as we build our plans? And finally, the view of everything. I thought about using the word gestalt for about 15 seconds, and then that was a terrible idea, just to get the G, but we're not going to do that. So if you're taking notes this morning, what you can do is you you can put these down. You can say, the goal, the gods, the glory, and the view of everything. The goal, the gods, the glory, and the view of everything. And we're going to work through those four things this morning. And we're going to be able to see on the one hand, what are the, what are the goal, God's glory of the many as they're trying to live life successfully without God with their own toads? And then we can see what is, what is the goal? What, what is our God? What is our glory as we seek to follow after this pattern that Paul is giving us here in this passage? So let's, let's look together at these. The first thing that we see here is the goal. We can see that their end, the end of the many here, is destruction. So this goal is the, is the end. It's the, it's the place that they're headed. And here he tells us that the many are headed toward destruction. Now, of course, you and I, we don't set out making plans for destruction, right? The goal is not, oh, let me see how terrible I can make everything. In fact, quite the opposite. We want to try to make things good, make things better. When we, in, when we inject the toads into the crop, we don't expect that things are going to go terribly south for the next hundred years. But our plans are very much like that. There is a reality that is, that is beyond it, that is destruction. And really, that's not what they're after. If you look here at what Paul says about them, he says in verse 18 at the end, he says, the many here who are walking, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, there are many other places that we could go in Scripture and we could see that the world sees the cross as foolishness, Paul says in other places. That the cross is a terrible idea to them. Why would you worship a a God who was crucified? And of course, we know the end of the story. That's not where it ends. But we know here that what Paul is saying is something that is striking. In the the passage here just before this, he is saying that um, he is pressing on toward the goal of Christ Jesus. We hear him saying in verse 10, back in verse 10, that uh, his goal is that he may know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and listen, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That's Paul's plan. Hey guys, I got a great idea. Let's let's fellowship together. Great, Paul. No, we're going to fellowship in suffering. And then we're going to take that one step further and we're going to seek to conform ourselves, make us look like the very death of Jesus. Doesn't this sound great, Paul saying? Come on, let's go. And like us, or like the many here, we hear that and we go, huh, I'm not so sure I want to be a part of that. You see, when we make plans, our goal is not the cross. Our goal is not fellowship and suffering. We want happiness. We want peace. We want comfort. We want things to go well. We want security, right? We list off those things. That's what you and I are after. And Paul's saying, hold on, I got a different pattern for you. There's a different goal that we can be seeking after here. We can instead be conformed to the death of Jesus, 
But the many don't want anything to do with that. This, this path that many walk walks directly away from the cross of Christ. That's why he can call them enemies of the cross. They don't want anything to do with the cross. That doesn't make sense to them. Suffering doesn't make sense. You, you, do you hear that when you talk to others about the faith? What the Christian life looks like? They hear about the cross. They hear about this Jesus. And they go, oh, hold on. Give me, the, give me the, the part that makes us comfortable, the part that makes us happy, the part that helps us to live a good life. I thought that's what this whole faith thing was supposed to be about. And we, we know better if we read our Bible. Just like us, the people in ancient Philippi wanted to structure their lives as best as they could to avoid suffering. That's the road that everyone wants to travel, and that's the road that Paul is calling us away from. When he's saying we should follow his example, he is seeking to have us conformed to the death of Jesus. Remember what that looked like for Paul. Remember what his life looked like? He was stoned, he was in prison. He was left for dead. And yet he says, this is, this is the good thing. This is what we should want. But he's trying to help the readers. He's trying to help you and I hear that the kinds of things that we're after, when, we are, when we're seeking after comfort and security and safety and ease in this world, we are every bit as foolish as the old cartoon mirages in the desert, right? It looks like, oh, there's water, and then you get there, and it's just a mouthful of sand. That's what seeking after success in this world looks like. We need to see that it is, that isn't it. It is, of course, the very thing that people have always been after. Paul argued with the ancient Epicurean philosophers the whole idea of their thinking was, let's try to be as happy as possible. Let's do things that make us happy. Let's bring in other people and try to help people be as happy and successful in their life as possible. That's, that's what they were after. And that's the sort of thing that you and I have been trying to, that we have been trying to talk about as a church, uh, about happiness and seeking happiness and where that fits. There's a whole great illustration of how the, the um, that kind of thinking was brought back in the Renaissance as a, as a way to try to keep God out of the picture and for us to be able to, to just seek after making people happy. Listen, when Thomas Jefferson writes in the Declaration of Independence that, the, that uh, seeking after life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he's drawing directly on that tradition, this really not God tradition of seeking to be happy. That's the goal of life. That's the goal of, the reward, of, of, of everything. And we're saying, yes, happiness is it, but happiness in this world is never satisfying. It's never what we, can, what we can attain. If we try to structure our lives and build our lives around this, we won't find it. We'll only find it by giving it up, by turning instead to Jesus, by being conformed to his death and his life. There's a uh, famous C.S. Lewis line about uh, if he wanted religion to make him happy. He said, I didn't need religion. I didn't need faith for that. I knew a bottle of port, is what he said, would do that. I could always get drunk, is what he said, if, if I just wanted to be happy. He said, I don't want, we don't want happiness. That's not what we want. 
What we're looking for is for something deeper, something that's, that's more real, something that has a lasting place, something that is true. If we want to seek this kind of goal, if we want this to be our goal, here's what needs to happen. We have to have our, our taste buds changed. We've been talking about connoisseurs of happiness, right? The comparison is uh, of uh, someone who's a connoisseur of, of wine or foods. Like, you learn how to taste all of the intricacies of the flavors and the, the thing. And what we've been seeking to do together here in the book of Philippians is to try to change our taste buds so that we have a, a, a desire, a, a, a hunger for a deeper happiness that is more longer-lasting, And so if I wanted to try to reduce that to a simple kind of application that you could write down, what I might say is something like this. Consider this week doing a reset on your goals and what it will take to be happy. Think about what does it take to make me happy and consider erasing that and starting over. What do I need? What is happiness? What is the goal? What am I after? Can I rejoice in suffering? Can I live that kind of life that Jesus lived, that Paul lived, that I'm called to as a Christian? The answer is with God within us, we absolutely can do that. And you can see very clearly what Paul is saying here when he says in verse 20 that the alternative here, rather than walking as the many with their goal is destruction, he says, we wait eagerly for a savior. What is Paul's goal? What is he after? What is he looking for? What's his pattern? It is eagerly waiting for a savior. That's our goal. Our goal is Jesus Christ. We seek to have our our taste buds changed so that that is the most satisfying thing we could consider. So that's the goal. We also want to consider the gods. Listen to who the God is of the many. What does it say there? It says, whose God is their appetite. Now, this is a case where uh, I know we got a couple of King James lovers. This is a case where I love the King James. It's hard to beat their God is their belly. I like that translation. That's a good translation. Your, your NASB translators, though, are doing a good job here in trying to make it a little more abstract. Because it's not saying, well, it's just gluttony. It's, it's their God is whatever they want to eat. No, it's appetites. It's more broadly what they desire, what they want to have. That's their God. Their God is cravings, lusts, desires. It's not, it's not just food. But their God is their belly. For the many, for this group, they walk in a way that, that doesn't have reference to anything outside themselves. The ruler for them is themselves. It's their gut. It's their feelings. We hear that all the time, right? Trust your gut. Do what feels right. Be true to yourself. That's the thing. Their God is their belly, their appetite. What do you feel like you need right now? Well, just go seek and do that. Live that way. That's not what Paul is calling us to here. That's what sounds right to us as sinners. We like that idea. Just tell me to do what feels right. I'm in. That sounds fantastic. But Paul's trying to show us, no, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a successful way to live. You don't want to do that. What you want to do instead is find a a better God. For the follower of Christ, our God here, we see, is a Savior, the one for whom we eagerly wait. A Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I I want to consider for a moment this kind of advice. 
Because we hear it so often and it's everywhere. Isn't, isn't be true to yourself good advice? Let's, let's think about this for a minute. In what way is it and in what way isn't it? Okay, so there's a sense in which we could say be true to you is good, right? In that way, we would say God created you. God gave you a particular set of gifts. He put particular people around you. He gave you a particular calling. And no one else in the world can be you in the way that God has called you to be you. That's true. But what isn't true, and what these, this, the many try to do, and what you and I try to do, is to try to live our lives as if there's no reference point outside of ourselves. We, we just want to try to, to, to do things that we want to do, that we feel like we'd like to do. And that kind of thing is so shifty because what you feel like one moment might not be what you feel like the next moment. There has been a huge shift in our society, and there's many different ways to put it. We could go into the philosophy, existentialism, and sociology, and all sorts of things. But the idea is, I, you know it as well as I do. It's the idea that to be happy and to flourish, we have to be free to make our decisions and be assured that no one else is telling you what to do. That's the common view. That's the view of the many. That's your God is your belly. You can be free to do you however you want to do it, and no one else is telling you what to do. Paul is calling us to something different, and we need to hear how radical this passage is. Paul is is putting an axe at the root of that tree. Everything that you and I have been told about how we're supposed to live in the world, from from our entertainment, our music, our movie, everywhere, it's everywhere. It's an unspoken agreement that your belly is your God, that your appetites, whatever whatever feels right, that's what you do. That's not how it should be. You, You and I should all, if we're hearing what Paul is saying here, that it isn't our belly, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ that should rule us, we should be unsettled by that. If you're here this morning living in the same society that I'm living in, if we've all grown up hearing some of the, some similar messages, then we should be unsettled by what Paul says here. It's all of the biggest questions of justice, freedom, economics, It's the assumption behind uh, lifestyle hacks and TikTok influencer culture. The common views of marriage and divorce. How we choose activities and and, uh, supplies or things for our children. The idea that we should be able to go out and find a tribe or groups of people that do and like the same things that we do. Everything is this quest to try to plan everything out in order to express ourselves exactly the way that we think we should express ourselves. And what happens in that is our God becomes our belly. Our appetite is our God. And it's insatiable. We can't live that way. Instead, there is a better God. There's a true God that can satisfy. One of the things that I've noticed in um, Disney films, of course, I have daughters, so Disney princesses have been a, have been a thing in our household for a long time. Um, 
Maybe you've, maybe you've noticed this, but in some, of the older, in some of the older films, there are examples where, like in the original Little Mermaid, I haven't seen the new one yet, so I, don't, I, can't, I can't speak on that, I won't, I won't do that. But in the original, there's this, this, this girl who's a, who is a mermaid who wants to become a human. She wants legs, she wants to get out. She wants to throw off all of her entire past, everything about her parents and her tradition and everything that they're telling her to do and express herself and live in this whole new, this, this world and everything else. She wants, to, she wants to be something different that throws off all of the tradition in the past. One of the things that's interesting that I've noticed in the more recent films is something different, though. Like, for instance, in the movie Moana, the same thing. You have a, a princess kind of character. She feels like an outcast. She feels like she doesn't fit with her family. The rules of her parents don't jive with what she feels like she's supposed to be doing. They live in a, on an island, and she feels like she wants to go out to the sea and travel and discover and these kinds of things. What happens, though, in the story is interesting. She learns more and she pursues this, and what she finds out is that she actually comes from a family of explorers, that there are ships hidden on the island, that just a few generations back, her people were explorers. That's what they did. And so she feels this as as a part of herself that she's retrieving, that had been forgotten. Do you see the difference between those two things? One is reaching back towards something that's true about her identity. Yeah, you are an explorer. That's what, you were, that's what you were designed to be versus the, the fish that's trying to become a human. You're not a human. Those are two different kinds of things. One is just expressing a desire and the other is reaching back for a truth. Do you see the difference? Expressing what, just what I want. I want to be part of their world versus this reaching back toward a calling of something that's, that's a part, literally a part of who you are. There's the same thing in the movie Encanto, if you've seen that one. In, in that story, there's the family is trying to hide all of these things. We don't talk about Bruno and all of that stuff, right? But what the main character does in trying to explore what's happening is she realizes there is so much of what ha- their family has gone through that is not being, uh, that is, that is not, uh, being talked about. It's not there. It's being denied. Again, do you see the difference? They're reaching back and they're finding truth. If, as believers, here's where I'm going with this. I'm not just trying to ramble about Disney for a whole bunch of time. As believers, we could turn back to the way of the many and just try to listen to our appetites and do what, what feels good. This is, what I, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to live. Or we can go back to what God says about who we are. You know, it may be that there are things that are not happening in your world around you right now that God is calling you to do. It may be that God is calling you to to live differently in the world. In fact, it is that way, but it might not be the same as your parents. It might not be the same as all the people around you. God has different callings for different people. But what's not happening is we're not just doing what we feel like we want to do. Instead, we're reaching back toward our history. We're finding out who are we as God's people? Who did he call us to be? And how can we live that out faithfully now? Those are two different kinds of ways to live. And so if I wanted to distill all this about God's down to a simple application that you could write down, what I might say is something like this. Spend some time reading the Bible with an eye for how it tells you who you are. Read the Bible with an eye for how it tells you who you are. God is telling each and every one of us who we are, who we belong to, what life should look like. And he's calling us to throw off 
what we think it should look like and instead live out the truth, the reality behind all of it. So we've looked at the goal, we've looked at the God, now we want to look at the glory. I want, I want us to see what glory looks like here. We see in verse 19, he says, their end is destruction, their goal, their end, their goal is destruction, their God is their appetite, and their glory is in their shame, is what he says about this way of the many. Now, if we think about what glory is, we probably need to pause for just a second to say something about that. Glory in general is this sense of, of significance, of weight. Like in, in, a, in a, a conversation, when somebody says something really serious that's happened and you feel that, that weight of like, oh, man, the joke I wanted to make is not appropriate anymore. Right? And that's, at least that's how, it, that's how it feels to me sometimes. There's a weight sometimes when somebody drops a piece of news about their life or something like that where you know, oh, man, we're in, we're in different territory now. This is, this is serious. We've taken a turn. When you think about that weight, that feeling of weight, that's the sort of thing that the, the Bible's talking about when it talks about glory. We talk about the glory of God. We're talking about the seriousness. We're talking about all of his splendor, all of the majesty, everything that God is, his might, we saw this morning. The, these things, this is God's glory, and, and we have nothing to say to it. There's no response except praise. This surpassing splendor, that's what glory is. But the many here are trying to find that here in this life. And what we find is their glory is their shame. There's a parallel passage in Romans 6.21 where we hear, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. You hear that? They're, they're trying, to, trying to live their life here and now and walk this way, thinking it's benefit, thinking it's glory, but really it turns out to be shameful. For the Christ follower, there's a kind of a double truth. On the one hand, he says uh, right here in verse 21, Jesus will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body. Do you hear the glory for us? That's where the glory comes for us, is in what Jesus is going to do, in what Jesus is doing in our lives. But we have both. Yeah, right now our bodies are not all that they will be. They're lowly. They're humble. They're kind of a mess. Some of us do a better job at taking care of them than others, but you know what? All of us, these bodies are going are gonna to be done for one day. But one day beyond that, Jesus is going to bring about this transformation. The glory for the many is in their shame. As I was trying to think about that this week, there's a particular example that came to mind, and, and I hope, I hope uh, this doesn't come across as uh, judgmental or, or you know, somehow political or something like that. That's not what I'm going after here. I think there's, a, there's a, a fascinating comparison. The actor Kevin Spacey. Some of you maybe know Kevin Spacey, right? He was a, a popular actor through the 80s and especially in the 90s, really, really big. Um, he was doing a Netflix show called The House of Cards uh, up until about 2017. Now, referencing a, a show is not a recommendation for the show in the pulpit. We, we say that sometimes, right? I'm not, not doing that. But talking about, you don't have to see it, but... He was, he was in that show, and one of the things that happened in that show is he was playing this, this politician who was uh, this, like, kind of sleazy, manipulative guy who's trying to get, become president. And you're watching him as he, as he wields his power in all sorts of ways and, and is, like, uh, taking advantage of people left and right. And you know what? He was winning awards for the show. Like, everyone was like, wow, this, this show, this guy's amazing, and they're giving him awards left and right. Well, until 2017 
when allegations started to come out about some of the things that he had been doing through the years, how he had been using his power to abuse people and things like that. I use this comparison not to throw shade at Kevin Spacey, but he was winning awards for being a manipulative abuser of power. They were like, wow, you are so good at this. How do you get so good at acting in this role? He was glorying in the very thing that he should have been ashamed of. What came out, of course, was that a lot of what that role was was the reality of what his life was. But again, not to throw shade at Spacey, what I want us to do is I want, to see, I, want, I want us to think about how that looks in our lives. Sometimes the very thing that we want accolades for, that we think, man, I'm so good at this. Look at me. Everyone else says I'm good at this. This is fantastic can actually be the thing that we should be ashamed of. They can be the things that we thought were good. They can be the toads in our life. What might that look like for us? It might be boasting in a successful career at the expense of our family. It might be stacking up fun memories and experiences with your family at the, oppor- at the expense of opportunities to share the gospel. It might be a, an, a vast knowledge of hobbies or trivia at the expense of knowing God's word. What, what is the thing for you? What is the, the thing that's, that you might be tempted to boast in that really maybe that's not something you should be boasting in? We all have one. I guarantee it. For the Christian, both can be true. We know right now we don't have it all together. We know that Jesus will transform us. So if we were to put all that as a simple application, what we might say is something like this. Don't hide your sin, but rest on grace. Don't hide your sin, but rest, rather, rest on grace. We don't have to brag that we've got it all together, that we do everything right. In fact, do you hear some of the things that we sing about? on Sunday mornings, we say some pretty nasty stuff about ourselves in some of these songs. I was a wretch. I remember who I was. I mean, some of these things are just like, man, do you hear hear what we say about ourselves? Why do we run around claiming to be something better then? No, we, we are sinners who need the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what it is. And what an astounding and amazing thing it is to know that by faith alone, resting in Jesus' work, we can have all of the glory, all of the transformation, all of the hope, simply by grace, freely given to us. Not, well, do X, Y, and Z and come back to me. No, that's not what God does. By grace, he gives it. Don't hide your sin, but rest on his grace. If we see the goal, the God, and the glory, then finally we're looking at the view of everything. You hear it here, they have their minds, in verse 19, the many, they have their minds set on earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. For the Christian, our minds are set on something different. You can, you can hear it really all through the verses 20 and 21, but I really like the, the particular way that it ends where it says, uh, by the exertion of the power that Jesus has even to subject all things to himself. Do you hear what we can do with all things? 
We can either treat everything, treat all things like this is all there is, and this is where we find our joy, and this is what we see in the world, or we can recognize that everything that you and I see is subject to Jesus. He's the ruler. He's the giver of good gifts. He's the one where anything good comes from, and he's the one who's transforming and redeeming this broken, fallen world that we live in. We can look ahead and we can see here that what the Bible is saying here about us is not that there's some future uh, hope of a disembodied existence, but that Jesus is going to return and bring our very physical bodies back to life, transformed, new, like his. What an amazing picture that is. It gives us a new place to find our glory, a new place to locate our hope. You know, in the ancient world, the city of Philippi here, they, they wouldn't have had necessarily the idea of a, uh, like being citizens or sojourners in a different place with the idea that one day they're going to go back to, to the homeland and go back to Rome. Uh, rather, they are a, a new city, a new outpost belonging to Rome, and they're ex- they can expect the coming of the emperor, the coming of the ruler. Do you see the difference? It's not, oh, I'm a sojourner living in this land and one day I'm going to go far away. No, they're saying this is the place where God is coming. You hear that in the Bible. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Our expectation is not that we float away, but that Jesus' rule and reign is coming here. And one day it will be perfect. And right now we begin to experience that in pieces in this community, in our lives in the work that God is doing. This should clarify what it means when it says our citizenship is in heaven. It's not like, well, one day we'll get to go home. It's one day home is is coming here. It should reorder our lives. Some things become more important. Other things become less important. You know, when it comes down to it, this view of all things is the very problem that you and I have with the toads. Remember the toads? We have plans that we want to make. We have things that we want to do in our lives and we think are going to work out perfectly. And we know that often our plans end in destruction. And part of the reason it does that is because we don't have our eyes fixed on what they need to be on. We have our own ideas of what the outcome should look like. We have our eyes fixed on earthly goods the things here. But there's a kind of reordering that needs to occur. The fourth century theologian St. Augustine said, uh, talked about the ordering of our loves. That is, we tend to have disordered things. We have affection for the the things of the world, for money or power, things that we can get here. But what needs to happen is we need to find our, our love and our affection fixed on Jesus. And when that happens, the other things find their way in in a right order, in a right ordering, so that we can still love people. We can still love food. We can still love things in the world, but that we do it in in the right proportion, the way that we should, recognizing that what Paul says here, all things are subjected to Jesus. You know, this really is the thing that we just sang about a bit ago. 
I don't know if you noticed it or if you, if you, were, you were thinking about it, but the first verse of, of one of the songs that we sang just beforehand had these words. It said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is a, that's an experiential view of, of what Augustine was talking about. When I have my eyes fixed on Jesus, when you have your eyes fixed on Jesus, it causes everything else to, to change. The things of earth become dimmer, not quite as bright and significant as they seemed because we have our eyes fixed on Jesus. There's a, an, an ordering of the significance of things around us that happens when we turn our eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. We should seek to see all things as subjected to Jesus because they are. A simple way for us to work at that this week is for us to strive to see all things as they are rightly ordered by their ruler. I'll say that again. Strive to see all things as they are rightly ordered by their ruler. That should be you and I. We're given here in this passage two ways to approach life. One is a a goal that will fail, gods that can't fulfill us, glory that turns out to be shame. But the other is a higher calling. It's a citizenship that we can't lose. It is a, a hope for a Savior who will not never fail. It is a guarantee that your very body, everything, all the bad, everything will be transformed because he has the power and all things belong to him. Let's pray. Our God, this morning, we pray asking you to help to clarify what really matters. Help us to fix our eyes on you. We pray that, that in doing that, we would find our joy and our happiness and our peace in you. And that that would cause all of our desires and affections for the things around us to just be transformed. We pray that you would rip the things from our lives that shouldn't be there. We pray that you would help us to rightly love and live in the places that you've called us and the relationships that you've called us to. We pray, God, that you will help us to be faithful people. Help us to be citizens of a new coming rule and reign. Convince us of the reality of that and help us to live it out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.